HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, a co-working and event space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meet and 3, our weekly food news roundup. Last month, Hurricane Florence walloped parts of North Carolina. According to the Weather Channel, it was the wettest tropical storm to ever hit the Tar Heel State. So how did the restaurant industry respond? Some helped FEMA weather the storm, while others got to work feeding people on the ground. We just walked in and said, we know how to cook, what can we do? They said, I need you guys to just cook 150 pork loins, and we were just like, uh, okay. (laughs) Now the attention needs to be on Florence's long-term effect on North Carolina's farming community. The general mood of farmers is one of certainly resilience and almost feels like it's the normal course of business to just get hit by a gigantic hurricane and need to just keep on going. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I am your host, Joe Campanelli. Uh, when I'm not hosting In the Drink, you can find me at Fausto, where I'm a beverage director and partner, um, or sometimes at Celestine, uh, where I've also created the wine program there and a, a small partner in, in Celestine, both restaurants in Brooklyn. Um, Fausto's been keeping me pretty busy uh, already this fall. Um, so this is actually the first show of the fall season. Thanks so much for tuning in. I really appreciate that. Uh, actually just got back from a trip to London where I, I haven't been there in over a decade and had just the most incredible both uh, dining and, and drinking experiences there. Uh, if you guys haven't checked in on the food scene in London recently, I highly recommend it. Um, We went to great places like Quality Chop House, uh, Lyle's, uh, Leroy, uh, Sager and Wild, Laughing Heart. They're all fantastic. And there's there's so many more that we didn't get to. Um, Highly recommend going to London. But 
without further ado, we're going to start today's show. Um, our guest has actually been on the show uh, briefly before as, as a, a rare call-in. Um, he is someone that uh, I, I admire quite a bit in the, uh, in the world of, of wine. Um, I'm just so excited uh, to have uh, Raj Parr on the show. He is a, a veteran sommelier, winemaker, award-winning author, uh, and much more. Uh, he's someone that uh, we can all look up to in this industry and uh, probably the best blind taster around. I don't know anyone uh, who could do it better, but uh, welcome to In The Drink. Welcome back to In The Drink, Raj. Uh, it's so happy to have you here. Awesome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, so today, I, I, you have so many exciting projects I'd love to dive into, um, including Sandy Wines, Domaine de la Cote, Evening Land Seven Springs, which you can find those wines at, at my restaurant Fausto. Um, but today, I, I really want to talk about your new book um, called The Sommelier's Atlas of Taste, uh, which is coming out on October 23rd. And uh, I've been following, you've been posting on Instagram for the past few years, uh, your travels for this book. Uh, congratulations on the new book. And I'd love for you to tell us uh, what, what made you want to write a, a second book and how is it different from the first? Uh, yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, yeah, the first book, you know, me and Jordan McKay, my co-author and dear, dear friend, uh, we wrote a book called Secrets of Sommelier, and it was, uh, you know, the story of sommeliers and, you know, wine lists and just overall the, the wine scene was happening in, in the U.S., uh, and then we decided to do a second book just a year after that, so we started working on it really 2013, so it's been, you know, Five plus years of research, we traveled um, pretty much all around Europe. The, bo the, f the book is focused on Europe, so this only is Atlas of Taste, and we're trying to answer the questions like, why do the classic wines of the world taste the way they taste? And we take a deep look into the geology uh, and try to kind of decipher what the different soils, uh, where the soils are, how they kind of uh, you know, make the wine unique in, in its own way. And can you talk about yours and Jordan's relationship? How did you guys get together for the first book, and how do you, how do you work together? Yeah, so Jordan is a you know really well known uh, writer, uh, you know on food and wine and drinks, and uh, he's written several books. I think he's written two books in the last year. Uh, his barbecue book with Aaron Franklin that's that's a pretty epic epic book, and so he also writes about wine. And we've written, this is our second book on wine. And I met him through uh, the sommelier scene. He was he moved to San Francisco, I think, in the uh, early 2000s. And then, you know, he started dating and then married a very good friend of mine, Christy Dufault, who was a teacher at the CIA in, uh, in Greystone. And so became good friends. And we realized we have a similar palate and started hanging out. And our relationship is... is is, uh, you know, we traveled together, we spent thousands and thousands of miles and driving in a little car and often I'm sleeping on the same bed and, you know, keeping, keeping the, the budget still, you know, intact because, uh, you know, if you travel for four or five years in Europe, uh, one month at a time, it gets expensive. So, and we don't really have a big budget. The book was, you know, more a, a passion project. It's never, a, you know, it's not a it's not like a restaurant job, you know, it's like you just, you write the book because you really feel something uh, you want to write about. Yeah, that, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I imagine that uh, you, sp you would, when you go out to eat, 
you don't have an inexpensive taste when it comes to wine. So if you save some of that budget for <laughs> Unfortunately, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I love the book. Uh, congratulations. I was able to, you know, to view uh, some of it before, before it came out. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. It's well-written. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and I think it's important. Um, uh, one of the things that you guys tackle right from the beginning is the concept of terroir, um, and I think you do a really great job of showing the the arguments surrounding terroir and ultimately making a strong argument for uh, for you know for the book through through the lens of terroir. Why did you feel like that was important to put like right right at the beginning of the book? I think sense of place uh, is is very important. Uh, to drink a wine is great, but then to if you drink a wine and you connect with the, either the people who make it or the place or the soil. I think, you know, identity, because we all want to connect with something we can hold on to. And a bottle of wine is just, you know, a beverage we drink. But if you can connect that bottle of wine with the place, and the place oftentimes comes from, you know, the truth in the vineyard, or maybe it's a producer style, and, and that's that connection. The book is pretty much about that connection. And, you know, it's from producers in the Vaca or Jura or, you know, Mosul or Burgundy or Bordeaux. So it covers all the classic regions but really that connection between the wine and the taste of wine and the place, that's what the book is focused on. Yeah, and can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, how do great winemakers accomplish a connection to, to the sense of place? I think everyone has a different, different uh, perspective on that. Some people really kind of, you know, we'll make like five wines from a very small place and they'll really kind of focus on the soils and they'll really, you know, what, you know and how close the vineyards are, but the soils are completely different. So, but, but then some producers think of that and say, I'll make a blend of those five little parcels. And that's, you know, a good example of that is maybe like Hermitage. A producer can have, you know, different soils on the same hill and they make one wine, whereas someone maybe in you know, Koroti or in Korna say, I'll make single vineyard wines from these vineyards I have. So different perspective. Uh, I think the, the philosophy of the producer is very, very important. Uh, even though the book is more focused on regions, we have to, of course, pay attention to the, the producers who are, you know, having their own ideas about these, these vineyards. Yeah. And how did you choose the, the regions? Why do you want to focus just on Europe? Uh, uh, you know, also in Europe, and the book is almost half is France, I think I think Europe, especially France, has done a lot of research on soil, and have really focused for you know hundreds of years of why these grapes are grown there. You know they all have, of course they have the Appalachian system, and a real real they really define the typicity. And many in the New World still it's kind of, you know you can plant anything anywhere, mm -hmm. but in Europe you have, you know you. you if you're planting Pinot Noir and Burgundy, you won't, you can't plant Cabernet. You can, but you can't call it Burgundy, or you can't plant Syrah or, you know, anything else. So it's it's very, you know, it's it's the tradition, you know, follow the tradition. Maybe in the new world, in the next 20, 50 years, that'll happen. But so we focused only on Europe in this book. And in Europe, you did France, Italy, Spain, Germany, Austria. Yeah. Stop there. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you know, we could have gone on and done you know, uh, so many other countries. And, and even in those countries, like we can include everything. In Italy, especially, we could have included five more regions in Italy, but, you know, uh, 
we just try to focus on things which are uh, more current and things which we could get to. Otherwise, we could travel for the next 10 years and still do like, you know, Georgia and Hungary and Greece. And there's a lot lots to talk about. Uh, Wine Portugal. is such a big topic. You have yeah. to distill it down and have some level of practicality to a exactly. four-year, five-year project. Exactly. That makes sense. But I imagine it was really difficult to... Some of them were probably obvious. Like you go into you know, all the premier crews and grand crews of Chablis and like that, that for you is uh, I'm sure at some level obvious, but were there ones that were, were, were harder to leave out or, uh, yeah, I mean, I think also if you look at the Burgundy chapter, it's, it's written with a different perspective. So, cause Burgundy is written by everyone and, and there's so many amazing books. Uh, I don't think our chapter is, is the greatest chapter of any, any Burgundy, but it's a different perspective. Bordeaux was really, really fun to write. It was a region we discovered as we went there. Uh, that was a really, really fun, one of the funnest chapters, I think. And Alsace was also really, really great to discover uh, the different soils because both those regions are not uh, regions we go to very often, me and Jordan. Uh, we've been there a few times, but not really often. And we've drank you know, a lot of classic wines and the wine scene's changing in, in Bordeaux and same in Alsace. So it's that those two regions were very special. Things we learned as we went along. Yeah. I mean what what was the most surprising uh region or what that you went to? You know, uh I would go back to Bordeaux because Bordeaux. because you know, as we I mean unfortunately we don't drink that much Bordeaux, at least I don't. Um uh, some of it, but but you know, it's it's. I mean, a lot of Bordeaux is inexpensive, and all the top ones are really expensive. They can't really you know afford those. But back in the day when they were inexpensive, I used to like you know wish we could drink fancy classified growths for not that much money. But now it's a different story. But really, the ge- the the geology there is very interesting. You know, mm-hmm. it's 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 you know the draining of the swamp and all these different terraces and how the Classified growths are grown on these terraces, and it's. I think there's a misconception of just, you know, what Bordeaux is. It's it's a really amazing place, and there's really distinct soils there, and all these chateaus have, which are built, and they make one Grand Vin, one main wine, and they really have a true terroir, a true voice, and and I kind of discounted that in in the past. So it was definitely. Something I and, and another region which which was amazing. We spent a week there was was in Piedmont, and uh, you know we drink a lot of, lot of wines from Piedmont, and over the years and things have you know changed and evolved. And but really, it's so amazingly different. When you go to the vineyards, you like you walk in the vineyard in Serralunga, and you walk in the vineyard in La Mora. It's like crazy. It's like completely. You know, we, I've been to Piedmont like ten times, but I've never like compared soils and taken like a, a soil pit and you know check what's mm-hmm. you know what's under mm-hmm. the ground and it's amazingly amazingly different so that was a really really fun really fun place to visit and and talk soil i love that <clears throat> i love uh if you go to piedmont around this time of uh of the year you can just look out on the vineyards and uh, for the most part you can tell what's planted just by the leaf color you see like green leaves you know that's nebbiolo uh, if you see like red red leaves, is probably Barbera, and the brown leaves are Dolcetto. Just looking out on the, and I, I love that. Yeah, and we happened to be there uh, in November, oh. so it was it was pretty amazing to uh, you know see the vineyards and 
and, and taste the wines. And I love this little extra wrinkle to the terroir conversation that you, you guys included in there um, when talking about Bordeaux and, and Burgundy that is not something that I had contemplated before. Um, and that was sort of this idea of the man-made terroir with the draining of the swamp in Bordeaux or the Perrier and the, uh, uh, the stone quarries that were filled in with, with other soil. And, uh, you know, that happened a long time ago. Yeah. And uh, and it done had been done by man, yeah. but now there's strong terroir there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, because they would. I mean, the the Dutch drain the drain the swamp just to kind of dry the land, and then planting's happening after that. But in Burgundy, over the years, they were just breaking down these uh, these quarries, and they have these fault lines, and all these vineyards are so close together, but so different because of these fault lines and because of these quarries and you can if you really look into it you, you walk up the vineyards you can see it but if no one told you that you'll think oh yeah it's just a hillside which is broke but mm-hmm. it's actually <laughs> was done by done by people it was uh, it's pretty amazing that's that's really incredible what are some of the things, and right in the beginning you mentioned about how uh, you guys both had learned a lot from it. I imagine Jordan learned more than you did. <laughs> oh, no, uh, no, no, I, no, I think we both did. You know, I, th- I think we, you know, all we had before, so, you know, Jordan does all the writing because he's, and he sends back to me and then I, you know, take a look and change things or leave it the way they are, reorganize it and back to him. So it's back and forth. But he, you know, he's an amazing writer. But, but I curated the trip. I mm-hmm. kind of had the appointments. And every time we went to a region, we discussed before the region, okay, now we, let's, let's try to find a vein which, which would be the story of the region. And sometimes we didn't find it. Sometimes we're like, okay, well, you know, maybe, maybe it's a different approach because, you know, we didn't go into any region saying, okay, we know this region. We're going to write it this way. And it was just like... You always went... You didn't say, I think that right now we're no. going to talk about this and this. We took so many... Like, you know, if you read carefully all the regions, they all have a difference. There's no mm. like... It's not like the same approach in every region. Because sometimes it was all, all soil. Sometimes it was very cultural. Sometimes it was just driven by the people of the region. So, you know, it was not always... And, and you're talking about the sense of terroir. Yeah, the terroir, yeah. The, the sense of place was not... You know, we expected every place to be, oh, it's all about the soil. But it wasn't always all about the soil. Sometimes it was just about, you know, it's like, I mean, Tuscany, for example. Like, if you look at Maltoncino, I mean, it's a cultural... I mean, it's, it's not, you know, of course the soils are there, but there isn't that much soil research done. I mean, there are some, but not as much. So it's definitely... A producer style or you know if you walk into a I mean, Italy it was a tough place for us to kind of talk about soil except for Piedmont because you know there's not that much soil compared to France like you know there's there's you know we didn't see a geologist in Italy but we had a geologist in Bordeaux and Burgundy and we worked with one who kind of oversaw Rhone and the Loire but it was it was tough to kind of you know narrow it down but we learned things in Montalcino which we didn't know before. I mean, just the way that, you know, and also, you know, it's changed so much. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a newer region, Montalcino, but, you know, it really like, got going in the late 80s, really in, in, on the highest level, and there's a lot of new planting. So it's a very different place than what people think. And do you have a sense as to... Um Obviously, in you know, in Burgundy, the soils have been studied. 
and vineyard sites have been studied since the medieval ages. Um, it sounds like now with information exchange happening more quickly, we can get a better understanding faster, but it still takes time. Like, How long do you think oh. it takes <laughs> to you know, start to truly understand? It, it, you know, it's, it's a long, long time. First, you have to even the mapping the regions out. That's that the government does. It's not even. Then you have those maps. Then you kind of overlay, you know, the microsoils, and then you see what each producer has. I mean, you know, there's there's some really good maps out there, but you know, there's amazing maps in, in Barolo and and uh, in Bordeaux and Burgundy and stuff. But still, in other regions, it's it's not there. Like if, like even the Jura. Jura was a complete. You know, it's very rural. It's there. It's not. You know, it's if we go to Beaujolais, it's very rural. It's not like you know. It's not as advanced in micro terroirs like in like in Burgundy and Bordeaux because you know there's also a lot of money in Burgundy and Bordeaux, whereas the small regions are still kind of you know they're small producers who own like you know two or three or four hectares and they make like two wines and it was, it was you know every region had just a different. Uh, different so can, story. which uh, can you tell some of the regions that are uh, you felt are really. Uh, had the soil truly influenced the terroir and then others that it was more the the culture and the people around? Uh, the the most, the clearest terroir place was, of course, Germany, uh, Riesling. Uh, nothing is as transparent as that one grape. And then when growing on different slates of different colors because of uh, geology or, you know, sometimes... Uh, Sometimes just uh, the way the river uh, runs through the those terraces, I think that was the most like clear. I mean, you know, Mosel, uh, Rheinhessen, Rheingau, Nahe. Just to break that down, that was amazing, and that's really. I mean, you know, I went to Rheinhessen before, but going really deep, I didn't realize it's mostly all limestone. Mm-hmm. You know, because you don't talk of limestone wrestling in in Germany at all, because the only place that has limestone. We, not only place, but only place which is in, you know, we, we talk about. So that was pretty interesting to, to, to see that. And that's why the wines are so broad textured, and that's why the wines have been dry for longer. Uh, but Germany was also complicated because there's the fruity style off dry wines, and then those, there are the dry style, which is, which is now the most popular style. But that change also has, you know, it's very new. It only happened. That's a, that's a cultural change. Mm-hmm. The palette of, Germany changed in the last 20 years. So here you have a soil, which like the same wine we tasted like 20 years old, which was like, you know, a Spätlese, and now it's made Spätlese and Trocken, the same wine, because the people don't want sweet wine. They want dry wine and the German, the German uh, drinkers. So, and that's how, you, probably in 20 years, there'll be very little Cabernet Spätlese out there. There'll be mostly dry wines. Do you find that one... <laughs> One style translates terroir better than the other. Not to on the spot. I know. No, no. He, no, I think of this. <laughs> no all, one listens all, to this. Don't no, worry. <laughs> no, this, this, this. I, you know, I always, I always, uh, you know, think about what this wine would be if it was sweet or dry. I think you have definitely more perfume if it's a fruity style, off dry, Cabernet Spätlese, and you get more of the true minerality of 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 the place if it's dry. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, what I prefer it depends, you know, what I'm eating. But but I like them both. I, I I like I love I love a crunchy cabinet, and I like a love a like a like a serious and taut uh, dry dry riesling. 
Yeah, and where where do you think? Obviously, you said that in Germany, the culture is influencing the the terroir now too. But but where is it even more so the culture than than the soil influences terroir? Wachau, Austria, because uh, love it. When I went there twenty years ago, most of the wines were dry and tart and thirteen percent, and and now most of the wines are quite heavy. 14 plus, maybe residual sugar, botrytis, and that's the predominant style. So that changed also in 20 years, a drastic way. Uh, just bigger wines, and uh, for me, it's 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 an issue. You know, I, I like the dry. You know, I I don't want to drink a 14 percent nine grams of sugar wine. It's not, I, not that was my next question. And, you know, someone who's one of the co-founders of the In Pursuit of Balanced Tasting, which highlighted so many. Uh, great wines from California um, and showed this more balanced style and approach to Chardonnay and, and Pinot Noir. Uh, I wondered when you said 14%, I was like, is that going to be, especially with the residual sugar, can you, can you have balance in wines that are hmm. that intense? Yeah, they, but the wines are tasty. They're not bad, but they're just not my style of wines. Mm-hmm. I, I prefer the, the tart, you know, and it's kind of, it's amazing. We did like many blind tastings and we preferred the wines of the Kamtal the most in Austria out of, you know, you have Kremstal, Wachau and Kamtal. And you, you, the most famous region, the most expensive wines are the Wachau. The Kamtals are like, you know, whatever. It's like no one thinks about them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and those were the most compelling wines. Uh, we did many blind tastings there <laughs> and back home just to, just to kind of make sure we made the right, you know, right, right call on the book because, you know, it's, uh, you know, but there, there are some peop- people who are really kind of, you know, uh, uh, Peter Vader Malberg and, and Martin Mutenthaler and, and Allzingers and these guys in the Wachau are still kind of pushing for that kind of dry style and crunchy style. But predominantly it's all, you know, and, and so, but the soil is not, the style is much more, uh, uh, you know, obvious over the, over the soil mm-hmm. in that case. That makes, that makes total sense. All right, on that note, we're going to take a very quick break. We'll be back more with Raja Parr uh, and talking about his new book, The Sommelier's Atlas of Taste, right after this. Bogart has made much progress over the past year since their grand opening. They are a growing community of professional freelancers, entrepreneurs, and startups. Their dedicated team guarantees you receive a productive and worry-free work environment. 100 Bogart is currently filling up their two-person to 12-person private offices. The spacious pop-up gallery, premier rooftop, and brand new full floor with terrace are available for your next event. Podcast rooms, conference rooms, and meeting spaces are also available for booking. 100 Bogart hosts events like art exhibitions, pop-up stores, product launches, and fashion shows. Heritage Radio Network is a proud member of the 100 Bogart community and often holds events in the building. Visit 100bogart.com to schedule a tour and learn more.
right. We're back with Raja Par talking about uh, the Sommelier's Atlas of Taste, his great new book coming out on October 23rd. I highly recommend you guys all uh, get it. Raj, we were talking before, and uh, you mentioned the word minerality. Um, and that's something I'd love to, to dive into, is I find that uh, I, I use that word quite a bit. Um, and you uh, get into a discussion about, uh, about minerality uh, in the book that I find to be really, really interesting. Um, there's some people who are, don't like the word. Uh, if you could tell us a little bit about the, the discussion of minerality that, that you get into. Yeah, and the, just first thing on, on, on that word, because we, we go into some detail about, about the palate and about the, you know, how we taste. Now, the book is called The, the is Atlas of Taste. So it's all about what you feel in the mouth. It's not about necessarily about the aromatics. A lot of people who smell wine and might smell uh, flinty aroma or like a, kind of a matchstick or, you know, and, and they might mistake that for minerality. Minerality is something you taste. You don't necessarily smell it. You could smell it, but it's more about, about the taste because the texture of the wine is, is key. And in this book, if you, you know, read each chapter, we really focus on how the mouth, how the mouthfeel of the wine is, and 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 I think that's how you express minerality. Because of course, when when you plant uh, grapes on different soils, they have different reactions, and and the the grapes you know respond differently. A good example I can uh, give you maybe is let's see, which let's take Loire for example. Let's take Chenin Blanc. Uh, you have uh, you know Montlouis and Vouvray. Where you have some, uh, you know, you have more kind of a silex, some limestone, but like a very kind of a rocky, but you know, you know, slightly, slightly more uh, of the influence from the river. And if you have, and you take that, and then you go to the to the western end of the Loire, maybe go to Brazé, which is a different kind of clay limestone, and and deeper soils, and the wines are different, much tauter. They have much more breadth uh, than the linear wines you have in Montlouis, uh, more silica-based soils versus more limestone-based soils, and more clay also in, in Brezze. So, you know, really what that taste, you know, what the different texture is, how, you know, how they taste. Uh, also, another thing we discussed in the book is, uh, you know, like like granite, like soils, acidic soils versus alkaline soils. And and how they react. So when when you have a a wine which is grapes grown on um, you know on, on limestone or, or marine sedimentary soils uh, like ancient seabeds, and you get that saltiness because they basically are all fossils. They are off, you know basically fossils of if they are silex, they are uh, fossils of algae. If there's limestone, fossils of planktons. But they all are basically these silicate these little skeletons. Uh, of of these different uh, you know little uh, microscopic uh, which have which have settled over millions of years twenty thirty fifty million years old so that saltiness comes versus if you have a same grape grown on like a volcanic soil or granite soil or schist and you get that bitterness you know mm-hmm. so that's and you can if if you have a same grape grown on two different soils you can almost taste it and and. And that is what we refer to as minerality. We don't necessarily are looking on the nose for any reduction, but more about the taste of wine. You know, focus on the sweetness, the dryness, the tannins, the breadth of the wines. You know, is the wine just, if you drink it, it goes straight to your palate or goes sideways? 
and that's something which you know we really study the tongue a human tongue and how 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 it reacts to a wine yeah and you're not talking about like when you look at a bottle of mineral water and it says it has a thousand parts per million of Correct. potassium no, and no. it's it's the impression that the wine it, gives it, you yeah, on the it's, it's an impression because uh it's very hard to take a mineral from the soil through the vine into the grape and post fermentation into the bottle I mean, there's a lot of discussion. People have, uh, you know, argued uh, that there's no minerality, and and you know, we're not we're not talking about the minerals which came from the soil. It's just how the vine reacted to the to the rocks, to the to the ground, to the what was under where they where they grown. If they're grown on, you know, alkaline soils or acidic mm-hmm. soils, and and you know, it plays some it plays a part. It's not the only thing which makes the wine. Uh, special, but it's definitely one of the most important things. It, it, to me, it, saying a wine has minerality is almost a, a value judgment on the wine. That uh, it, it, For me, I, I feel like I say that mostly on wines that I like. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Good yeah. wines. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you feel the same way? That yeah, that's, uh, 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 yeah, absolutely. But so, sometimes, okay, <laughs> so in this day and age, like low acid white wines are out of fashion <laughs> because people relate with minerality only with high acid wine. But you can have a you know a low acid grape like a you know Marsan or Roussan or you know in 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 some even even some Pinot Grigios from from northern Italy which are you know more on the bitter and almond side or Chenin Blanc grown on schist and Savignier more you know not a very high acid variety compared compared to it grown like that's a good example of Savignier grown on schist and then you have not far away you have Brezze on limestone. And one is super high acid and taut, and one is kind of oily and richer. It's dramatically different. Yeah, they're not that far far away. So you can't say that the Sauvignon doesn't have minerality just because it's not as high acid and taut. But you know, that's also something also, you know, it's it's driven by some more years of today. And, and maybe it'll change. Maybe it'll stay. I don't know. You know, between your... Uh discussion of terroir and the the dive into uh, understanding how we taste, I find that you make a really compelling argument for blind tasting and the importance of blind tasting, um, maybe, maybe indirectly or, uh, or so. Um, it, was that a, a, anything of, a, of an intention? I know you're, you're sort of a legendary uh, blind taster. Yeah, I, I think this book came off that. I think, I think that when I think of tasting wine, I think of tasting wine without a label because I did that for so many years, just not knowing what the wine is and trying to kind of really focus in on the, on the place. Uh, so I'm this, I mean, I, 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 we didn't make this book to be a blind tasting guide, but it could very well be a blind tasting guide. Uh, and, and that's, I, I didn't really think of that while we were doing research. But yeah, if you, if you, because it's all classic regions, classic wines. Mm-hmm. But what's classic today wasn't classic 20 years ago. was classic, you know, the classics are changing. So, I mean, we're talking Loire right now. There's so many amazing prisons in Loire, and even in the Northern Rhone, or even in, in, in Sicily. And those are all now becoming the new classics as opposed to the, the old guard. It's, it's both the, the classics, but also your, your argument for understanding terroir and how terroir can represent uh, in wine and then understanding how you can taste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And, you know, if uh, blind tasting, I guess, would only work if wines would show terroir. 100%. And also if you can understand how you, how you taste 100%. it. 100%. And also, I mean, you know, you know, definitely uh, try to uh, really focus on, you know, farming, organic, organic farming, making wine with, uh, you know, low intervention and, you know, wines which are more, you know, which are more of today. They are, you know, not heavily chemicalized and not made, you know, just industrial wine. It's more about, like, really people, the place, and people who really focus on on the place. And that's that's very important, and that's that's definitely kind of a, you know, overarching idea of all the all the regions and all the producers we saw. So would it be fair to say that the more say like chemical intervention you use or um, uh, pharmaceutical yeasts, like the, those things all remove the terroir equation. hundred percent. I mean, you know, I mean, if you're using chemicals in vineyards, you've, you know, you're killing all the, the mycorrhizas in the, in the soil. And th- that's what transmits the place through the vine into the grape. And then if you add yeast and additives in your wine, then you're taking away another level of, of what the the where the wine where the vine is grown, so those two elements definitely kind of diffuse the idea of place. That makes sense. And I know you make wine on the west coast of the United States uh, in this very low intervention way. That, but one of the things I love about your wines is that they they all represent so so elegantly, so beautifully, um, and without without fault. And I think that's something that. Um, can continue to be added to the, this conversation of uh, of natural wines or, or low yeah. intervention wines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all you know. You always got to be careful. It's got to you know. Uh, you have to definitely uh, you know compare it to bungee jumping. You know, when you're making wine without any additives, no sulfur and vinification and stuff like that, aging. You know, you have you know you have to hook it in right. You're going you're going to take a plunge. You don't want to go all the way to the bottom. Yes. <laughs> you gotta, so you know that's you know, it's 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 controlled negligence. You don't want to do like the discount <laughs> half-ass bungee jumping. Yeah, school. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you just just gotta be careful. Make sure you you know you're aging in the right place. And uh-huh. Your vessels are topped. Your temperatures. You know it's it's not it's not warm. It's just things little things will kind of keep the wine uh, from getting out of out of microbial control basically and how far off do you think we are until someone could write a book about the sommelier's atlas of taste to to, about some of the west coast uh regions that you work in oh i i think it's well minimum 20 years i you know i think that you know what's amazing about these regions if you you know if you open 20 wines from like you know the top wines from piedmont or you know, 20 wines from, you know, you know, Montalcino or 20 wines from Burgundy. You know, they all have a very similar voice, right? But if you open 20 wines from, like, Santa Barbara County, you won't find that voice yet. I think it's going to come. You, have, you know, you, you might find five. You might find, but you won't find. Like, so when the region comes together, that's when it becomes, in my world, it becomes like, you know, it's 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 more classic. We include Spain in this book, you know, and Spain has been, I think, one of the most exciting places to visit, to to taste, and so many amazing young producers in regions which are forgotten, you know, and and even in in old regions like Rioja and Ribera del Duero, and you know, exciting stuff's happening everywhere, and and I think 
the place definitely trumps everything else. Mm -hmm. That's the most important thing. And then if you have the, the smart people coming in who are humble and kind of listen to what's happening in the vineyard and then translate that in the bottle, that's when magic happens. It doesn't happen if some egotistical person comes and says, I will make this with 100% new oak and I will make this with extreme ripeness and it's going to be a magnificent wine. It might be a magnificent wine, but it will not be a wine of place. Yes. And that the book is about the wine of place. And conversely, on the other side, if someone who might be equally as egotistical says, I'm not going to do anything. Right. I'm going to be very lazy. Yeah, yeah I won't. I'm not yeah. going to be very clean. Yeah, I, I won't prune and I'll just let it grow wild. Yeah, I've, I've heard those things before yeah. also, yeah. Then, then you're just basically not, you know, I mean, honestly, you know, we all believe wine makes itself, but you still need the person to kind of guide the vine first by trellising it because it doesn't, you know, there's bush vines so still you have to put it together. You have to prune it and then you have to, you know, help it grow. It just won't just, you know, you have to control the vigor of the vine and so one way or the other. Um, and then you just make sure it, you know, it ferments cleanly and it ages in the right way and that's it. But you, ha but you need that kind of, you know, it, t it takes a lot of hard work to make a minimal interventionist wine that has terroir. 100%. You, you, can't, you can't just leave it in the barrel and just say, oh, I'll come back to it a year, I'll bottle it. No, it, it, it's, it, it, needs, it needs a little bit of, you know, a little bit of attention. Raj, so you're doing a book tour for, for this book? Oh, yeah. Where can, where can our listeners find you? Uh, so we start in California and San Francisco, uh, in LA, Santa Barbara, San Francisco, Oakland, uh, Portland, Seattle, and then I'll be in New York, uh, I'll be in New York in, uh, for the Raw Wine Fair and a few events in New York, then Boston, DC, yeah, it's, it's a long list, Raleigh, yeah. Charleston, yeah. And can, can our listeners find the dates and locations anywhere? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, I, I, I put it on my Instagram, okay. uh, Rajat Parr, uh, at Rajat Parr, it's my, my Instagram, and, I, and, and I'm going to update it, keep updating it on the Instagram so people know, you know, where I am. Great. Yeah, I definitely recommend. I'm sure, I have a feeling that most people listening follow you on Instagram, but if not... Uh, you should follow Raja Par on, on Instagram, um, and uh, come to the also come to the Raw Wine Fair. Uh, I'll actually be moderating a panel that uh, Raj will be on about sourcing organic grapes. Yeah, that should be interesting. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait as well. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming. It's uh, my pleasure. The thank drink. you. Uh, and uh, I, I like I have said a few times. I, I highly recommend this book. In the meantime, you can actually pre-order it on Amazon, which is what I've done. Um, I think that's a great thing to do. Uh, and it'll be out on October twenty-third. The Sommelier's is Atlas of Taste. It's. It, I think it'll be a really important uh, book for all of us in the in the wine world. So thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for joining us for another week. If you like in the drink and want to help the show out, please rate and review and subscribe on Apple. Podcasts. Podcasts. I also want to thank our thank our engineer Matt Patterson and our producer Jasmine Molly and Rennie Lopez who did our theme music. Hope to see you at Fausto soon. And until next time, thanks so much for listening to In the Drink.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.